Season three of Let's Shape the Future is here. I'm your host, Ben Dickinson, and I'm really excited to chat to business leaders, inspiring individuals, and more about who and what is shaping the world we live in. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you enjoy the content, and share with anyone you think would also enjoy. Without further ado, let's crack on with episode one, where we get a great insight into European venture capital. Welcome to Let's Shape the Future and the very first episode of season three. I'm thrilled to be back and I'm kicking off the series with a great guest from Europe's venture capital ecosystem. Kirsten Cooley is the managing partner at Brightly Ventures and joins me to discuss her experiences, VCs in the Nordics and much more. Thank you, Kirsten, for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. So when I was doing some research for this episode, it was amazing to see the breadth of experience that you've had over the last couple of decades in, in your working career. Where did it all begin? So if you took me back to the very start, what does that look like? Um, I've, it's, it's opportunistic. I, I never really had the plan for my career. I, I have followed my heart and jumped on opportunities as I've come across them. And now in retrospect, it looks like a well thought out strategy, but it, <laughs> it wasn't really. I, I grew up in a little mining town in the north of Sweden the kind of place that you usually don't return to for work when you've left. And I graduated from college in 1995. And this was in the midst of the internet starting to happen for real. My first job was with a Silicon Valley firm called Echelon. They designed uh, control networks to connect machines and electronic devices for sensors and monitoring uh, sort of industrial transportation and home automation markets. So very early. Um, They listed on Nasdaq in 98. And I then went on to another startup in financial technology, uh, originally founded in Sweden with ABB as a pilot client, but spread around the globe and was acquired by Warburg Pincus in 2005. So um, I spent six years with them, uh, heading their US operations out of Boston and New York. And so I spent the first part of my career in the tech world. And then the second in investment banking, uh, primarily for SCB in Stockholm, where we built hedge fund risk for institutional investors. And so since almost 10 years back now, I'm trying to combine those two careers in the best way, investing in early stage technology startups. Nice. So it's actually quite um, a, a common combination. I spoke to recently the, the chief growth officer for a fintech called OpenPaid on the podcast, and, and she said how she had an investment banking part of her career and then a startup side and then combine those for for where she was now. So it's it's quite interesting to hear how it's actually quite a common sort of stage where you have experiences in both the corporate world the startup world and then you combine the two to sort of progress your career even further yeah I think I think it makes sense I mean it's obviously um, helpful if you can uh, if you can bring some operational experience also into the into the companies that you invest in Mm. no absolutely and just before we kick off any further so For those who aren't aware, did you want to provide some background as to who Brightly Ventures are, what you do and what your role in the business entails? Absolutely. So, uh, as I said, I I started investing in VC almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I set up the first investment vehicle in 2012 together with my partner, Katja Bergman. Um, We had both, both identified that there was a gap in the Swedish market for early stage financing. Sweden had so many talented tech entrepreneurs, but very few seed funds at the time. Most of the local VCs disappeared after the dot-com crisis. So between the business angels and a handful of larger VCs, there was nothing. And we convinced a wealthy business owner to sponsor us and created more, the first actually female founded VC in the Nordics and likely one of the first in Europe. And we brought in about 10 other investors too along the way. 
it was super small in assets under management, but we made 15 investments, many of which have delivered great returns for the investors. And it quickly made us understand that we could make a bigger difference with a larger fund size and, and a more institutional setup. So we closed that portfolio in mid 2018 and launched uh, Brightly Ventures. Uh, we, at the time, there were three partners in more, and we brought in um, John Elvisho, who is a, a successful serial entrepreneur from Sweden who um, built a company called Toby Technologies, uh, which he took from uh, his research in, in KTH to all the way to an IPO. So we're four partners in Brightly, and uh, we invest uh, early stage, super early stage, I would say, anywhere between ideas and A rounds in uh, Sweden-based companies. Our typical ticket size is half a million euros to one and a half million euros. We are, I mean, has, we really look for um, some type of unique uh, digital transformation or digital technology, but we're very agnostic in terms of what it is. So we cover a lot of different sectors. Do you find, um, obviously, where you're so, at such an early stage in terms of um, ventures, do you find it's quite difficult to assess whether a business is going to be successful at that early stage? And do you see that a lot of them sort of adapt their business plans over time as sort of the business evolves? Absolutely. I mean, that's part of the uh, uh, part of the game here is that uh, what you think you invest in. Uh, I mean, obviously, these founders have you know a solid plan and you know they know where they're going. But what we know is that it's never going to be a straight line between A to Z. And what we look for in the founders are those who can adapt to that journey. Uh, I mean, really, there is only uh, three things that we look for. Uh, we look for the right idea uh, at the right time, and then thirdly, the right team to manage the right idea at the right time. And 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 then, of course, there's a, a you know a bunch of other things like a large enough addressable market, and we need to get comfortable of that. And the team needs to convince us that that they can navigate the unknowns of this industry. So, why is this happening now? Why is it interesting now? Why is this team? And you know who have they sold to so far? Who are the co-founders, the customers? You know how do they manage to get person X to quit his amazing job uh, to join them, and so on. But I mean, the the one thing that we know is that it's never going to be a straight journey. There's going to be lots of uh, ifs and buts and turning around on the way. I suppose that's what's good about the startup world, isn't it? They're all so agile, resilient, but agile in terms of um, like we've seen in the last year, the amount of businesses that have had to pivot their business models because of um, the pandemic and other stuff that's gone on. Um, yeah. So, so, so look, you, you mentioned about um, all of your career experiences. What are some of your key highlights or takeaways from your experience over the years? Uh, well, I mean, my, I, I, when I advise young people, I, I, uh, I, tr I really truly believe in being opportunistic uh, and follow your heart and jumping on opportunities as you see them. Uh, one of the uh, one one of the key things that I've learned throughout the years is how important the team is, and and you know that's as I just said that you know that's really what we're investing in. Uh, going into business only with people who are sharing the same values than you—it's all about the people. The idea, uh, an idea only has to be so good, but it's all about execution. That's that's probably the uh, most important lesson that I've learned throughout my career. And why venture capital? Why startups? Like, what do you love so much about the ecosystem? 
That's a very good question <laughs> because venture capital is the most risky investment, but it's also where most of the value created in in just a short time the VC industry has outsized has outsized impact on our society. You know, it's uh, most of the net new jobs over the last 50 years have come from startup or mm. companies or young companies. Um, and, and though venture capital as an industry may be young and, and the asset class is small, high growth startups and their long term investors have truly changed the world. I believe that. And as a VC, you can be at the forefront of societal development. It, it's actually very thrilling, thrilling and almost a carousel that never stops, <laughs> uh, which makes people in the VC industry work you know a long you know long hours uh, and all the time and uh, all all the partners that are from i mean we work, work with the entrepreneurs we work on the terms we're closing deals and later we're managing the portfolio companies i have a stronger responsibility towards our lps and to think about marketing the firm uh but really day to day the very fun part of being a vc is that not two days are alike i get to spend my days meeting super smart people who have sacrificed a lot to go all in at something that they truly believe in. And that's kind of special. You know, the grit, the tenacity, the realization of dreams of changing the world and seeing their ideas come to fruition after all that hard work. It's just a gift to be part of it. Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd echo all of those points. It was, it's quite interesting. Obviously, we're talking about Nordic startups and you mentioned um, sort of net new jobs there. I, I read an article today that, that Klarna obviously... Um, Swedish startup they have just announced that they're going to double their headcount to like 400 people next year so it just shows that these companies are fueling the economy and it's amazing for someone like yourself to be around those companies from the ground up and see them grow and see them develop into these these massive organizations so when I was researching um, Brightly uh, I saw that regarding your approach as a venture capital firm it stated that you support the founders with more than just money. What do you mean by that? And, and why do you offer more than just capital investments? Why we do it is uh, because um, most of the, I mean, most entrepreneurs want something more than the money. You know, they, they realize themselves that they can take shortcuts if they also get uh, something else. And, and that's, uh, you know, a big reason why they take on angels early on too, is that, mm. uh, you know, they, they see the benefit of of tapping into someone else's knowledge. And the way we do it um, is we try to help them as much as we can without being in the way. Uh, because it's not, you know, we, we don't have a, a specific program with steps that each and every company has to follow. We mm. believe that, you know, each and every company is unique and what they need at different parts, uh, you know, in their, in their journey are different. So we, we, you know, sit down with them and ask, uh, you know, what they need and how they want to work with us. And with some companies, we have we have check-ins every week, or you know, we might have a bi-weekly meeting to discuss how we can be helpful. And some companies um, just, you know, they want to be left more alone and uh, call us up or, you know, reach out to us when they need it. But it can be anything. Like, I mean, obviously, the, among the four partners, we're all, uh, we all have 20, 25 years of tech experience so there are a lot of things that we can help we've all grown or scaled um, international businesses in the tech world so it can be anything from helping them to set up an option program for um, uh, for the employees or thinking about uh, which strategy they should apply when they when they go to the first uh, country outside of Sweden or go to the US or 
Um, if it's a hardware, if they have a hardware play, maybe they need to set up a factory in China. You know, it, it can be um, wanting to hire um, a new growth person and helping them out with that, or just being a shoulder to cry on, you know, on those days when you need it. It's a range of uh, responsibilities then being a VC. Yeah. So another thing when I was doing some research that I found um, is founders for founders. So how important is it to a business that the VC investing in it has been in the trenches themselves and created tech successes? I can imagine as a business owner, that would be really appealing because as you just alluded to, there could be contacts or experience or stuff that you can then draw on which they can then benefit from. I think that most founders uh, look upon it as very important. I mean, I like it, it's definitely so that if if uh, um, I, I think you're you're in high demand if you have you know done an you know created a company and and built built a highly successful company and then start investing, you're definitely going to be high in demand from founders. Uh, and I and I and I truly uh, believe that it's you know of course you, you can use your experiences to to help companies out. Having said that, I think that there are a lot of really good VCs who have not uh, been serial successful entrepreneurs. Um, so it's uh, I, I don't think that's a prerequisite for being a good VC. But from a founder perspective, um, I think a lot of them. Um, if they had the choice, you know, would prefer someone who had actually done it themselves. Mm, yeah, no, no, it makes sense. And um, earlier you spoke about a, l- a little bit about what you look for in the companies that you're investing into. And and previously we had, um, as I mentioned earlier, another VC on the show, a gentleman named um, Joshua Seigel from the US. And, and he outlined what he looks for in startup investments and presentations, pitch decks. What are the sort of first things you look for when a debt comes across your desk um, as to whether or not you're going to invest in them? Does it make sense? Uh, it, it, has to, it has to catch my attention and the storytelling has to be such that I immediately understand why this is important, why this is exciting and, and who, you know, who, who are the people behind it who are going to do it. And that's the same when they present. You know, I, not everyone is a is an estrador and you know not everyone is is a good speaker but you have to get in a in a fairly short amount of time you have to convince the person on the other side why this is important or why this is going to be uh the next big thing so storytelling is important i think um and then of course it it so you know that's sort of the the first mm. uh the first instance but the, the exciting thing here is that most com- companies don't have it figured out, right? That's the incredible opportunity. So it means you have to look for signals because the actual data is not going to be there in many of the companies, especially the earlier, the earlier you invest, the less, the less actual data you're going to have. So, And the signals will vary depending on what industry or sector or type of company you're looking at. So in e-commerce, for example, there's no way to tell about success unless they generate revenue. And in a, in a marketplace, the activity or how many visitors are coming there or their transaction volume will tell you that. And, and if you, if it's an enterprise B2B, then, you know, are they in pilot conversations or, you know, how are those maturing? So it really varies depending on what type of company it is. 
but but of course for us it's really important to understand the, understand the business and the drivers and and you know try to to demonstrate that the company is developing some traction and some momentum on on what's important for them and to to flip the question on its head so is there anything that you sort of look at and it's an automatic no-go in terms of like what are the sort of red flags that when, when these presentations come across you look at and think oh no that's that's, that's not going to happen i like it when there is uh or we, i would say this we shy away a little bit from uh companies where there is one founder and not a team so mm. team is super important uh partly because you have to show us that you can attract other people and uh, the better you are or have been at attracting people early before you actually have the money to pay them you know if you can convince a super good CTO <laughs> that he's going to jump on this ship with you without getting paid that's a really strong signal for us so uh, one-man bands uh, have a little harder time uh, to pass um, I mean, competition is always like it's a highly competitive space, uh, and and a super early company with no traction that's usually a no go, uh, you know. So so then it depends, you know, the, the uniqueness comes into play there. Um, I don't know if I have any more sort of complete no goes. Uh, I yeah, also actually that the the founders um, are not heavily diluted early on in the business. So, you know, if if, uh, if they come to us as a seed investor and 50% of the business is already given away to someone else, that's not going to be attractive to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, and you've spoken a lot about how the people in the startup are as important as the idea. How important is it for you as a VC to know not only how the startup is going to spend the capital, but also who are the individuals spending the money? Is that where it comes from? Um, I mean, it's definitely important to us to know how they're going to spend the money, certainly. Uh, we're not going to micromanage anyone, for sure. But uh, but we do want to know, you know, if it's uh, going to spend 100% going to be spent on marketing or, you know, whether they're building out the tech team, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, that's important to us. Um, in terms of who's going to spend it, this comes back to the question of um, being a balanced team of several individuals. Mm. So uh, we, there are companies where obviously there's a, you know, one person who is stronger than the other, than the other, even if there are several founders. Um, and and it, you know, and there is no problem for us if you know if it's if there's one CEO who owns a little bit more than the others, but. Uh, um it can't be too loopsided you know again that's that goes back to the one man band question is uh we want the we, we want the founders to show that the, that they are a team right that it isn't one person's company it's a team building this and they're going to be there for for each other you know when the wind blows hard uh as well as you know when things are all rosy mm. no no it's, it's really interesting and we spoke a little bit like we've mentioned silicon valley a couple of times and obviously we're talking today about nordic startups european startups how has the nordic and european in general startup scene developed over recent years i I know a lot of people will think of silicon valley when you talk about startups but there's been so many great companies coming out of europe your your spotify's your revolutes Mm -hmm. those sorts of companies just to name a couple there does seem to be a greater spotlight on 
the European startup ecosystem and what it can produce nowadays? Absolutely. I mean, the Europe, Europe startup ecosystem has seen a surge in the number of unicorns, uh, as you mentioned, and the, the pace at which they're created. Um, however, European startups are still fewer in number and raise less money and have lower likelihood of success than its US counterparts. And part of the upswing in, in Europe is um, is that Europe is starting to benefit from, from more diverse sources of funding and, and also a broad acceptance of entrepreneurism as mm. a valid career choice, which has not been the, the case before, but also that uh, lawmakers are uh, making it easier to create new companies and welcome foreign talent. Uh, there's also a wealth of great universities which produce a steady stream of engineers and data scientists and programmers and I, I believe that Europe now trumps the US when it comes to the sheer number of professional developers. Um, and if you look at, at Europe as a whole, it is one of the world's largest economies and, and a top trading partner for 80 countries. But the fact that it's not a single market has some, some profound effects of what startups must focus on in their early years. So that, you know, there's dozens of different countries with their own languages and cultures and governments. And, and, and even customer behaviors vary between these countries and distribution and marketing channels can be challenging. So, um, they, so they have definitely have some other challenges uh, than companies in the United States. So internationalization is a must for European startup. Uh, so to achieve the, the, the same type of valuations of, of US startups, European companies must expand quickly and early across many countries. Uh, and, and Europe has, has a very high number of startups. So I don't have the 2020 numbers, but I think in 2019, it was 140,000 startups or something like that. And uh, uh, around 15,000 of those have raised uh, between zero and two million US dollars and less than a hundred have raised more than 250 million US dollars. So that's a big difference between uh, Europe and the US. So the, the, the venture capital ecosystem has some catch up, catching up to do for sure. With the US, but but it's it's starting to look better in Europe. Also, the last five years, the the capital invested in rounds of 100 million dollars have grown four times, and and even uh, uh, we've seen a growth in the mega funding rounds as well. Um, and then then there's of course you know quite a difference between the various hubs in Europe. So uh, um, on a per capita basis, Estonia scores. Uh, really high having a you know boatload of startups in a very small population and have had a, a major role in building some of the European unicorns uh, whilst the UK you know definitely remains the undisputed hub in mm. terms of capital invested it, it is just so much bigger it's, it's twice as much capital is invested in VC in, in the UK compared to Germany and France so uh, and then as you mentioned Sweden Sweden has bred more tech unicorns per capita than any other region in the world, say for Silicon Valley. So it's standing out as one of the one of the true hotbeds in Europe. Mm, no, absolutely. And it'd be really interesting to see how that develops over time. And I think you've also it presents a massive opportunity for firms like yourself because there's going to be so many more startups coming out of um, those those regions that, that you can obviously um, benefit from. Um, you mentioned in that um, answer there about valuation and how Silicon Valley valuations tend to be larger or, or easier to get to those larger valuations than European startups. Obviously, there's a lot of focus around high-growth startups at the moment. Do you think some of them are overvalued, or do you, 
like do you think there's a lot of of hype and publicity that then leads to um I'm it's sort of like coinbase comes to mind in terms of some people think maybe that was overvalued to start with which is why it's obviously corrected down a little bit mm-hmm. yeah i th- uh, i mean i th- i think that's a, an inherent problem uh, and and uh even like at the the low uh, ranges where we are it's it's striking how um how valuations differ as well so some companies have a really hard time uh raising money and other companies you know that money is thrown after them and it's in the last i mean it's it's interesting because going into covid uh everyone thought that this was gonna you know it was gonna be a it was gonna be the end (laughs) the end Mm. of things but uh it didn't turn out uh, so bad, uh, you know. After after, after the, the first sort of chill, um, people were pretty nervous last spring. But that, by the end of the summer, people said, "You know what? It's really not not as bad as we thought it was going to be." And then it turned out to be the second biggest year for venture capital in history. So, um, so th- there's there's definitely so much money around, and uh, uh, VC as an asset class is firing. We have a situation now where many of the VCs are converting their investments in companies back to cash, and then we have the the, the general economic picture, where particularly with the low interest rates. So this produced the best possible opportunity, I believe, for early stage startups. There's there's never been a better time than now to do anything in technology and starting a business. There's never been more money available, and and there's no shortage of problems that needs fixing across mm-hmm. industries, from payment systems to cybersecurity to healthcare. Yeah. So, um, but that also means that um, sometimes assets will be mispriced uh, because not everyone uh, is, you know, as good or able to deliver on the promise. That makes complete sense. And. We spoke a little bit about the US and, and Silicon Valley. Do you, from your experience and from interacting with with other VCs, do you find how venture capital firms do they differ in how they operate given the geography? So, do you see much difference in how your VC works or other Europeans um, compared to the likes of Silicon Valley's, the New Yorks, those sorts of VCs? I mean, of course, uh, European VCs. Um... I Silicon Valley VCs, and you you can see that things uh, typically start there and then spread to Europe uh, as the little brother, and and I think that's you know that's healthy. It's uh, and and helpful, especially uh, definitely. And it's not. Um, I wouldn't say that that there is a, a huge difference, but but. Uh, uh, we learn. I would say more that uh, we learn here from the from the Silicon Valley guys, and then you know we apply it in in our own way. But but for example, Andreessen and Horowitz were very early in providing services to their to their portfolio companies, and that's becoming uh, you know not a norm. But you know there's several firms uh, taking on bigger firms taking on that approach here as well. So uh, um, you know good ideas are picked up and then uh, spread over here. And and do you see some of those Silicon Valley firms participating in more European funding rounds now? Do you think it's sort of um, over time the interest in the European startups has prompted investment from the US? Definitely, yeah. And uh, uh, it's not that. Um, I mean, obviously they come in a, a, a little later than I. I don't think we're going to see them had had on competition with a small firm like us you know mm. we're, we're a local small seed fund you know so 
but of course they're uh, they come in as companies grow and uh, and start making the the growth rounds and uh, um, I mean several of them have already set up uh, if not offices in London at least they have people on the ground you know to mm. cover and and that's what um, most of the European the big firms in Europe they cover um, Nord the Nordics from from London they have you know someone. Uh, usually a person um, who travels in here uh, regularly. W what we tend to see is that uh, um, most of those firms like to have a local CDC participate, I, I mean, a local um, VC participate as well. So um, even if it's not, uh, sometimes they require it to be um, a local lead, uh, but at least, you know, someone else who uh, um, who knows the team or knows the market or the ecosystem. And... Mm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And as I said um, earlier, it would be really interesting to see how much more attention the Silicon Valley VCs give European startups over time. I think it's only going to increase and, and it'll be really, really interesting to see. Um, so, so we mentioned earlier about how you obviously get a lot of pitches and a lot of presentations that will pass over your desk. Apart from receiving pitches, do you go out and try and find potential investments? Like, do you do you sort of switch around and, and go on the search at all? Absolutely. We um, keep a tab on all the incubators and accelerators and the universities. Uh, we have regular uh, contacts with all the angels that we know. We have a large angel network, so we talk to them all the time about their portfolios and, you know, who are the winners. Uh, of the the people that they've invested in, um, we get quite a bit of deal flow from entrepreneurs that we either have invested in before, or we didn't invest in, but where we we got you know we created a good relationship, um, and um, and then of course you know we attend events and you know all of that. But so so there's you know there's a a, a lot of different sources where deal flow comes from. Mm -hmm. Do you find? From what you've done so far, you invest more in ones that you sort out versus ones you receive, or is it mostly ones that come to you? We most of the ones we've invested in have been through our network. Uh, yeah, a smaller part have been uh, have been uh, called. Um, <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, no, it makes sense. And um, just to sort of switch up and to to look into the future a bit. So if you were to take a crystal ball and look into the future, <laughs> what do you see for the Nordic and European startup ecosystem over the next couple of years? Um, I think it's going to uh, continue to thrive. Uh, I hope that we're going to see um, more companies raising bigger rounds with European investors uh, and uh, building the companies longer than they than they have uh, until now so uh, not selling out too early um, I, I hope that we're going to see more European acquirers as well mm -hmm. uh, in terms of trends I think impact is a is a big trend uh, purpose-driven founders who are building companies that address Global challenges in healthcare or sustainability, I think, will be on the on the radars of venture capital firms. Um, climate tech has attracted a significant amount of interest, and uh, 
even though many many firms got their fingers burnt uh, in in the clean tech days, I think much much in the way of infrastructure spend has already been made. So so I think that uh, application of digital scalable tech solutions to address climate change could well prove um, prove a fit with the venture funding model going forward. And I think that um, as impact investing continues to gain momentum, I think more more investors are realizing that making money and having a positive societal impact can go hand in hand. So, so mm -hmm. that's interesting. Um, I also think that um, the use of existing technology to provide a facelift to legacy industries is an opportunity that, that is on investor radar. So fixing a, a problem for industries that haven't been brought into the 21st century yet. There's massive gains to be made in, in, a, in a lot of the different industries that are driven by application of technology. So, so, you know, digital disruption as an ongoing long-term global megatrend, I, I still believe in. For example, ma machine learning-based technologies to augment uh, scalable operating models and be, bring better predictability and, and more faster and ad agile way for companies to, to react to um, changes in their operating environment, that those kind of uh, sort of bigger, more complex trends. Um, uh, I also think that uh, data and all that it underpins from cybersecurity to the future of work uh, to quantum technology is interesting. Um, the, the media was full of stories throughout last year, 2020, declaring the end of the office and now it's going to be all remote future. I think that the reality is hybrid work, so, mm. so, so it's a little more nuanced. Some teams will thrive with full-time remote work and others will need a balance between remote and office work. And regardless of where each company settles, there's gonna be significant opportunities, both for founders and investors in this space to, to sort of reimagine how we use real estate and how we remove international borders to sourcing and hiring talent and, you know, just finding the optimal way to, to operate in a, in a new working environment. Um, another big one I think is, uh, um, industries running on outdated technologies so in banking aviation telecoms all these um, they're often extremely expensive on-premise solutions that have stayed in place mm -hmm. because it's just you know if it if it ain't broke don't fix it sort mm -hmm. of mentality and i think the pandemic was a wake-up call to companies that Absolutely. Uh, we're living with decades old technology and you know it's time to make the change so it shook up boardrooms, complacency on tech, <laughs> and uh, and you know, and the benefits of startups and how startups can can be part of uh, uh, of making this change. So um, uh, yeah, those are some of some of the things that I think will be interesting going forward. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that was a that was a great answer. I, I'd agree with all of that, especially the the industries which have relied on outdated technology for a very long time, as you say. There's been a lot of like it's, it's only been in the last couple of years where like mobile banking has seen has seen and a good user interface and i think a lot mm -hmm. of that is because of your, your revoluts your monzos those sorts of companies who have come mm -hmm. in purely based on on convenience and user experience and the banks have gone well okay let's do something and that's there is opportunity there and so much of it so um yeah it'll be really really interesting to see how the European startup ecosystem develops over time. Um, just to, to to finish off and round everything off, if 
anyone wants to find out some more information about yourself or Brightly Ventures or your portfolio companies, where's the best place for them to do so? We have a website, uh, obviously, and uh, we list our portfolio companies. Uh, there's a link to each one of them from the website. Uh, we are always happy to discuss or talk to people who reach out and uh, our phone numbers and emails are on our website too. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm uh, fairly approachable. So uh, <laughs> send, me, send me a message and uh, tell me what you want to talk about. And uh, I, I'll be sure to respond. Right, and yeah, thank you, Kirsten. It's it's been great to spend some time with you today. So I really, really appreciate it. It's been really insightful, and I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's been great to get an insight into the world of European venture capital. Um, I think it's safe to say that the region is definitely one to watch out for moving forward. So, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for inviting me for having me here today. Great. And that's it. Episode one of Let's Shape the Future season three is complete. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Um, I hope you enjoyed the content and we've got some great guests coming up for you in the rest of the series. Next week, we've got Dane Holwinski, a startup CEO coach who shares his insights as to what it takes to really nurture a successful startup. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review and share with anyone you think would enjoy the content. And I'll catch you next week.